Visit licentureexams.com and try our samples completely free of charge. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Licensure Exams podcast. I'm Stacy Frost. And I'm Dr. Hutchinson, and we're so glad that you could join us today. In this episode of our Demystifying Disorders series, we'll be exploring hoarding disorder, what it is, how it develops, and treatment interventions that you need to know about as you study for your exam. And take note here, Linton, <laughs> if you have trouble throwing things away, then you've met at least one of the criteria for hoarding disorder. Uh, gosh, if that's true, I might be in trouble here, Stacy. Luckily <laughs> for me, hoarding is much more complicated than just simply having a messy house. It's a legitimate mental disorder that you can find in the DSM-5-TR that causes significant distress and impairment in daily functioning. The diagnostic criteria have evolved over the years, but the core attributes, acquiring unneeded items and clutter that interferes with living spaces, have remained constant. Believe it or not, hoarding behavior often begins in adolescence, beginning to interfere with daily functioning by the mid-20s, and starts to cause clinically significant issues by the mid-30s. The severity of hoarding behavior increases with age. Mm -hmm. And there are some misconceptions, common misconceptions about hoarding disorder that I'd like to address right off the bat. One myth is that a habitually messy or disorganized individual will inevitably progress to full-blown hoarding later in life. Well, the reality is that the compulsive hoarding behaviors really stem from underlying psychological mechanisms. These mechanisms make it extremely challenging for those suffering from hoarding disorder to discard possessions that most people would consider worthless and unnecessary. So while messiness can accompany hoarding, the two do not have a correlative relationship. The difficulty in getting rid of items seen in hoarding disorder arises from deeper psychological factors that are driving the hoarding behavior. Yeah, but you know, it seems that whenever I throw something away within a week, I'll need it for a new project and that I'm working on. Or if I have a file that I've spent hours and I dump it in the trash because I don't think I'll need it anymore, guess what? That's the one that I'll need. Ah, you mean like all the information I sent to you for this podcast, Lint? Well, luckily, I kept a backup. Okay, okay. And I'm <laughs> giving you my unending gratitude, Stacy, for pulling my bacon out of the fire on more than one occasion. But I'm afraid Beck would definitely agree with you on this one. She's positive that I'm a hoarder. Just because my office looks like it's been ransacked by thieves looking for my antique toolbox I hidden behind the mounds of toilet paper, <laughs> which I wisely collected from Publix when the pandemic hit a few years ago. You know, Linton, I think Beck might have a point. <laughs> but let's explore a little bit more before we draw any conclusions. Okay, so hoarding disorder can be caused by traumatic historical events like, let's say, for example, the Great Depression or a pandemic. While such experiences may contribute to hoarding behaviors in some individuals, hoarding is a complex mental health condition with many contributing factors. And these include genetic vulnerabilities, differences in brain function, as well as cognitive and emotional regulation issues. There's no clear scientific evidence that traumatic historical events or scarcity alone directly cause someone to develop a hoarding disorder later in life. The development of hoarding is influenced by a combination of biological, psychological, and environmental factors over one's lifetime. 
Hmm. Wait a minute here, Stacy. Some of us like to collect things to preserve them for future generations, like <laughs> my Rook collection, or my Santa collection, or the light bulb collection, or the Susan Bach pottery collection. <laughs> well, you forgot to mention your meteor collection, that Shirley Temple collection I remember you getting, the Nativities collection, or the 45 records from the 50s downstairs. Not to mention all that stuff you've got in the attic, Linton, like all those outdated computers that you saved. Uh, I think the last time I was up there, I think I even saw an Apple computer from 1984. Well, I'll have you know that that antique 1984 Mac computer should be worth something by now. Well, sure, if it worked. Well, yeah, sure, if I can fix it, if I just spend a little less time doing podcasts. I think I've made my point here. Well, moving on, <laughs> let's talk about the diagnostic features of hoarding disorder and not just someone's opinion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At its core, hoarding disorder involves the persistent difficulty of discarding or parting with possessions, regardless of their actual value. This leads to an accumulation of unneeded items, even free things like junk mail or grocery bags, excluding, of course, those cute little Thanksgiving salt and pepper shakers shaped like turkeys <laughs> that I had to add to my collection this year. <laughs> Shopaholic behaviors are common beyond what can reasonably be used or enjoyed. Clutter piles up throughout the client's home. Beds, floors, tables, chairs, countertops, the attic, and the number one closet. Exactly how many closets do you have there, Lynch, if you have to start numbering them? <laughs> hmm, this is starting to sound like my house. Minimalist, I am not. I've got a lot of collections, Linton, just like you. Shells, rocks, feathers, teacups, fabric, gnomes. Oh, yeah, not to mention a lot of glitter. Really? And Your I, glitter collection is beyond <laughs> belief. Yes, I'm leaving trails of it in the house. And really, I've barely touched the surface here. And I'm not planning on parting with any of this stuff anytime soon. How is that different than hoarding? Well, that's where the next key criteria comes into play. Can you still use the areas in your house the way they were intended to be used? Can you sit in your chairs, cook meals in your kitchen, use your bathroom, or leave your house quickly if it was needed? Mm, yes. Okay, that rules out hoarding disorder for both of us. We're clear. Okay. <laughs> A client with this disorder accumulates so much stuff that it congests their living areas and prevents everyday use of that space. And it's not just limited to the house. Their possessions might spill way over into the yard, garage, cars, or other family members' homes. Mm. And I bet you keep your collections all very clean, neat, and orderly, like your background picture there, right, Stacy? <laughs> Actually, I do. There's a place for everything. All over the place. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're lucky you moved out of the dollhouse in Florida and now live in a mansion. <laughs> up there in the frozen tundra so you can store all of your prized possessions and still have a pathway open to your bedroom. <laughs> well, pretty soon we're going to need to convert the attic so we can make room for all the holiday decorations I'm planning on festooning around the house. Ah, that'll be fun. Well, as long as you keep them all neat, clean, and tidy, you've got nothing to worry about, Stace. Oh, God. 
One of the notable features of hoarding disorder is a high level of disorganization, putting things in places where they don't belong and mixing items that don't go together. It's not about collecting or displaying possessions in an orderly way. Clients with hoarding disorders struggle to categorize, file, sort, or keep track of possessions. Well, I definitely don't have a problem with that one. Growing up with a mother from Germany taught me early on to keep things in order. When I was a kid, Linton, I don't know if I ever told you this, but what? I even arranged my beanie babies by species. No, all come the, on. All the Be bears in one pack. I'm oh, not joking. Man. The sea creatures were in their own little pod. The exotic birds, you know, together in a flock. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a question for you, Linton. What happens when a family member puts their foot down and says, enough is enough. It's time for some spring cleaning. Glad you asked. A client with hoarding disorder will often become very highly distressed and emotional when faced with discarding or letting go of possession. You've heard comments like, I can't throw that out. I might need it someday. I say that all the time, really. <laughs> or get rid of those newspapers. Feels like I'm erasing part of my history from my memory. Mm. What if I need to refer back to an article someday? Obviously, it becomes a logic-free zone. Mm, right. And that's a common misunderstanding that friends and family have, thinking that their loved one is just being illogical or stubborn about letting things go. But as you explained, their distress and attachment stems from real psychological issues. Family involvement is essential, but forcing cleanup rarely works long term if the client's core issues go unaddressed. Mm -hmm. And remember that elders may display more severe hoarding as they acquire and save more over their lifetimes. Watch it, Stacy. <laughs> Hoarding does not spontaneously resolve on its own without treatment. It is considered a dysfunctional across situations and all life stages. Some individuals in their early 30s <clears throat> are just as susceptible as someone <laughs> in their golden years. Very nice. Which brings us to treatment interventions. Clients cling to possessions based on exaggerated fears of losing information, memories, or resources tied to those objects. And your favorite, Stacy, mm. cognitive behavioral therapy <laughs> is specifically tailored to treat hoarding and considered the first line treatment to employ. CBT helps challenge beliefs that drive acquiring and saving behaviors which teach organization and decision-making skills. Mm -hmm. And exposure and response prevention is another approach that involves gradually exposing the person to the anxiety of discarding items and resisting the urge to acquire and save. This helps the person to learn how to tolerate discomfort and make progress in decluttering. And motivational interviewing techniques can help build insight, willingness to change, and commitment to treatment goals. This client-centered approach explores ambivalence around letting items go. Mm, gotcha. So you know how much I love specifiers, right, Linton? Well, is the queen British? Is rain wet? Of course I do. <laughs> well, you just reminded me when you mentioned using uh, motivational interviewing to build insight that there are some diagnostic specifiers for hoarding disorder. And I guess you're going to tell us all about them, aren't you? Well, I think telling our test takers about them is really important. The specifiers for hoarding disorder that I want to mention here concern the client's level of insight. Okay, I think I know where you're going with this. For example, a low level of insight can be a treatment barrier, right? Mm, exactly. So the specifiers for hoarding disorder that deal with level of insight are 
with good or fair insight, where the client recognizes that their beliefs and behavior are problematic, with poor insight, where the client is mostly convinced that their beliefs and behavior are not problematic, and with absent insight slash delusional beliefs. This is where the client is 100% convinced that their beliefs and behaviors are not problematic. There's nothing to see here, no problems. So what about the with excessive acquisitions specifier? Oh, tricky, tricky. Well, the excessive acquisition specifier indicates that the client has difficulty discarding possessions accompanied by excessive acquisition of items that are not needed or for which there's no available space. How would your treatment plan look for a client who has good insight versus a client who has absence of any insight? Mm, Good question. So for a client with good insight, you can move more quickly into interventions like cognitive restructuring to challenge unhelpful thoughts or exposure therapy to reduce saving behaviors. And the client really, you know, recognizes the problem and they're on board with treatment goals. Mm -hmm. But for a client with absent insight or delusional beliefs about their hoarding, the first priority really needs to be on developing that insight. And you could consider taking a motivational interviewing approach to first work on building trust, express empathy, raise awareness, and stimulate ambivalence about their beliefs. Only once you've made some progress there can you start to explore any skill building strategies. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you have to first meet the client where they're at. Forcing change with the client who lacks insight will likely damage any therapeutic relationship you've built with them. So slow progress is better than no progress. Exactly. Remember, the hoarding behaviors have developed over time, so it's going to take some time and patience to really work on reversing all of that. That's a good point. And one final thought before we wrap up. Medications like SSRIs are sometimes used as an adjunct treatment to help manage associated symptoms like depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. Many people with hoarding disorder have a comorbid disorder like major depressive disorder, social anxiety disorder, or generalized anxiety disorder. As a therapist, making medication recommendations is beyond your scope of practice. Still, you can provide the client with a referral to a psychiatric evaluation to determine if medication would be helpful. Mm -hmm. All right. So here's a quick recap of what we covered in this episode on hoarding disorder and what you need to remember in your noggin for the exam. Hoarding disorder is a legitimate mental disorder, and it's not just about being messy or disorganized. It causes significant distress and impairment in daily function. Psychological factors like genetic vulnerabilities, differences in brain function, and emotional regulation issues tend to drive hoarding behaviors. Diagnostic criteria involve persistent difficulty discarding possessions, acquiring unneeded items, and clutter that interferes with living spaces. Clutter accumulates throughout the home, and possessions are disorganized, preventing the normal use of spaces. Individuals become very distressed when forced to discard items. Attachments are based on exaggerated fears of losing information or resources. Treatment often involves CBT to challenge acquiring and saving beliefs, exposure and response prevention, motivational interviewing to build insight, and medications for comorbid disorders. Diagnostic specifiers indicate the individual's level of insight into their condition as problematic or not, and this impacts the treatment approach. 
Well, until next time, remember, less stuff, more happiness. It's in there. It's in there.